Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 11. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 22. If you're uh, using one of the blue uh, church Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1008. Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 22. Before we hear the reading of God's Word, let us pray and seek His blessing. Father, we come before you humbly this morning, asking that by the same Spirit who inspired the author to write these words, that you would now speak to us this morning. Open our minds and our hearts to receive your word. Open uh, our, our minds to understand it, uh, our hearts to, to love it, and strengthen our wills that we might obey it and bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 17. This is the very word of God. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises as in the act of, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That is the reading of God's Word. The theme of this chapter stands out starkly in these verses. Again and again and again, we hear the author say, By faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. This is a chapter which is uh, unfolding for us what it means to live by faith, by that assurance of things hoped for and that conviction of things not seen. And as we saw last Sunday in verses 13 through 16, the, the hope to which faith clings, that, that hope that, that, hope, that, uh, that faith hopes to or holds to so strongly, it is a hope that transcends this life. Faith knows that the end of life is not the end of hope. Because faith knows that this life or, or this present existence is not the primary place, it is not the, the primary time when we will receive and enjoy the inheritance that has been promised to us. In this here and now, by contrast, we live as sojourners and exiles on earth. And what we have before us this morning are three examples of, of men who lived with such faith. Of men who lived with a hope that transcends death. A, a hope that, that extends beyond the grave into the age to come. We see it in Abraham, we see it in Isaac, we see it in Jacob, and we see it in Joseph. And I want us to look at each of these snapshots of faith more closely this morning to see what it is we can learn about the life of faith. 
The first snapshot is from the life of Abraham. The author writes in verse 17 that by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now the episode that the author is referring to us is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 22. It's a, it's a story that is familiar to most of us. We, we read in Genesis chapter 2 that after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham replied, Here I am. And God said to him, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. It's one of those Old Testament stories that, that sticks out in our minds because it is so hard for us to comprehend. We have no trouble seeing this as a test. In fact, it is probably safe to say that, that few people can think of a, a more severe test, to be asked to, to sacrifice your son, the son whom you love. Such a command is inconceivably hard. And however, we need to see that it is not just the, the challenge of offering your son that is the test. There is more going on here. It's not just that, that Abraham is being asked to, to sacrifice his, his beloved. That would have been hard enough. But there, there is more. He is being asked to sacrifice the son of the promise. Look again at, at verse 18. Look again at what the author says. He says that he was told to sacrifice his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Remember Abraham's story. He was called out of Ur. He was called to, to leave his family and his kindred and his homeland. And he was called to go to a land that the Lord would show him, the, the land of Canaan. And the promise was that, that God would make him into a great nation. A nation that would know the blessing of God and that would ultimately be a blessing to all the families of the earth. But several years in, Abraham still had no children. It was hard for him to see how he could possibly become a great nation if, if a servant was his only heir. And yet he continued to trust God. He continued to, to believe in him. And eventually, Isaac was born some 25 years after he had been called out of the land of Ur. And all of God's promises were going to be fulfilled through Isaac. Isaac was the pledge. Isaac was the, the guarantee. He was the, the token of God's faithfulness. Through Isaac, the promises would be kept. And so it's not that, that Abraham was only being asked to sacrifice his son. He was being asked to kill the promise. How could the promises be kept? All that God had promised to him was to be fulfilled through Isaac. If he sacrificed Isaac, it seemed inseparable from sacrificing the promise, from giving up hope. What was it then that, that allowed Abraham to obey such a command? What was it that allowed Abraham early the next morning to rise and to head towards the mountain which God had shown him? 
We find our answer here in verse 19. We are told that he believed God could raise the dead. He knew that if he sacrificed Isaac, that would not be the end of the promise. Because God's promises, the things hoped for, are not limited by death. The God who called into existence all that is, things visible and invisible, is surely able to restore life. He is surely able to raise the dead. And Abraham believed that even if he sacrificed his son, God would still keep his promise. In fact, he said to his servants, we will come back to you. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to unfold. But we will come back to you because he is the child of God. The promise. And of course the author says, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Because when, God, when Abraham had laid him upon the altar, when he had raised his hand to, to, to plunge the knife, God stopped him. and said, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy, but lift up your eyes and see the ram that I have provided as a substitute. And God spared Isaac's life by providing a substitute. But what do we learn from Abraham's faith? What do we learn from, from Abraham going even to the brink of sacrificing his own son, of sacrificing the child of promise? I think what the author wants us to see is that walking by faith will sometimes mean obeying, even when obedience seems contrary to God's promise. Abraham had to do that which seemed contrary to God's promise because God told him to do it. Abraham could not understand how what he was doing was in accord with what God had promised to do for him. And yet, because he knew that God could raise the dead, because he knew that not even death could thwart God's promises, he was able to obey even in the face of a hard command. We confess this morning that God's commands are not burdensome, and they are not. They are never contrary to our good, but they are sometimes hard. It is sometimes difficult for us, from our limited perspective, to, to see how they accord with our good. We've all been there in those moments when doing what God calls us to do seemed contrary to His promise to work all things together for the good of those who love Him. If you're married, you've had those situations where loving your spouse well seemed contrary to your own good. If you're a parent, you, you've had those moments when, when raising your children and the instruction and the discipline of the Lord and the, the hard work that that is seemed contrary to your good. And children, you know you have had those moments when obeying your parents seemed contrary to your good. You face the same dilemma at, at work, whether you're an employer or an employee. You've had those situations where obeying God was not in your career best interest. And you face those situations even in your neighborhood. 
when loving your neighbor well sometimes seems to work against your own blessing. And we need to understand that this dilemma is not limited to the the clear and universal commands of God. It's not limited to those commands that we can read off the pages of of Scripture. There are times when God calls particular people to to particular tasks. He, He gives a particular calling to someone. And there are times when those particular callings are unattractive to the one called, are hard, are are challenging, are, are true tests. Because we're not sure we want to do what the Lord is calling us to do. We know that it will lead us into a type of death. I think of Paul who was called of God to to raise a collection for the church amongst the Gentiles and take it to Jerusalem as a sign of the unity between the churches in Jerusalem and the churches amongst the nations. And as Paul was on his way taking that collection to Jerusalem, the saints stopped him and said, Don't go, for if you go to Jerusalem, the Jews there will bind you and they will seek to kill you. And Paul said, I know. I know the Holy Spirit has shown me clearly that wherever I go, persecution awaits me. And yet, I am willing to obey my calling, even to the point of death. We will face the same sort of challenges. We will face the same sort of difficulties. We will have those times when answering God's call upon our lives will seemingly lead us away from our good. And therefore we need to know what is it that will enable us to to press on in the footsteps of faith when the path before us seems to lead directly away from our good. What is it that will enable us to obey even when Obedience seems to lead to death. And it's the same thing that enabled Abraham to obey when he was called to sacrifice his son. It is that same confidence that God is able to raise even the dead. It is the assurance that death is not the end of our hope. We are willing and we are free to lose this life Because we know that our good is not ultimately tied to this life. I think of Peter's strange words in uh, his first letter, in chapter 3 of his first letter. He says, listen, who is there to harm you if you are a, a servant of the Lord? But even if they should make you suffer, even if they should make you suffer, they can't harm you, but they can make you suffer. And Jesus goes even farther. When he says, listen, all that they can really do to you is kill you. All that they can really do is take your life. But such persecution, such suffering, such hardship, even such death cannot undo God's purposes of working for the good of those who love him. Because if we are united to Christ, yes, we will join him in his death. We will suffer as he suffered, but we will also live as he lives. We will be raised. Sometimes we experience something of that resurrection even in this life. Sometimes even in this life we we see the the good outcome of, of walking the path before us, but we will always and inevitably 
know the resurrection at the end of the age. We will be raised with Christ. We will reign with Him. And therefore, we can walk in the footsteps of faith. We can obey even to the point of death without losing hope. Because we know that whatever afflictions come in this life, they are slight and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that is ours in Him. This was Abraham's faith, and this must be our faith. It is a faith that frees us to obey even when obedience is hard. But there's more here in this text. The second and third snapshots are are taken from the lives of Isaac and, and Jacob. And in these two snapshots, we see that not only does it allow us to obey when God's commands are hard, but it allows us to submit when God's will is confusing. We see this in in both these stories, inasmuch as, as both stories involve the younger son receiving the the primary blessing. Not the older son, not the the firstborn, not the, the one whom we would have expected, but in both cases, the younger son is blessed. First, we see it in the story of, of Isaac. We're, we're told in verse 20 that by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now, Isaac's blessing of Jacob and Esau is, is recorded for us again in the book of Genesis in, in chapter 27. And if you are familiar with the story, you know that it is not as simple or straightforward as this single verse in Hebrews might suggest. When Isaac was, was near the end of his life and he was ready to pass on the, the blessing to his children, he planned to bless Esau. He planned to bless his firstborn, his favorite. But you'll remember that with the help of his mother, Jacob, the younger son, deceived his father and took the blessing. Esau might say stole the blessing for himself. And the author subtly acknowledges this with, uh, with the, the listing of the younger son first. He, he says, not Esau and Jacob, but, but Jacob and Esau. But the question we have as we remember the details of the story is how is Isaac an example of faith? I mean, notice, the, the author says it was by faith that he invoked future blessings upon Jacob and Esau. But but how is Isaac being tricked into blessing his younger son? How is that possibly a picture of faith? I think we see Isaac's faith not in his endeavor to bless his older son, but in his humble submission to God's will when he realized that he had been deceived. In Genesis 27, we read, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father rise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. So Jacob has come in, he's he's received the blessing by deceiving his father. And now, no sooner has he left the room than Esau comes back from his hunt with food prepared for his father, that he might receive the blessing. And Isaac is confused. Who are you? he asks. And Esau answers, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. And then we read that Isaac trembled very violently. 
He realized what had happened. And he said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it before you came? He realizes what has happened. He he realizes that he has been deceived. He he realizes that he has given the blessing to his younger son Jacob rather than his firstborn Esau as he intended. So what would you expect him to do at that point? What would you expect Isaac to do when when he realized that he had been Deceived. Doesn't it seem at least possible, if not probable, that he would take back his blessing with anger because it had been given under false pretenses? I mean, imagine that, that you had given some fairly family heirloom away and you had given it away after being deceived. Would you not want it back? Would you not take it back saying that, that it was given based upon a, a lie? It's what we expect Isaac to do, but it's not what he does. On the contrary, he says simply, I have blessed him, and yes, he shall be blessed. It's not much, but it is an expression of faith, inasmuch as it is an expression of humble submission to God's will. Because in that moment, I have to believe that that Isaac remembered the words that were spoken before his sons were even born. Even before his sons were born, God had told him that that the older would serve the younger. Even before they were born, God said, I have chosen that the promise will go through Jacob. But Isaac resisted that word his entire life because Esau was his favorite. He was his preferred son, his firstborn. But here, finally, at the end of his life, Isaac realizes that God's will will be done. And instead of continuing to fight it, instead of continuing to push against it, he finally bows before God's will. He finally submits. And that is his act of faith. We see much the same thing in the snapshot from the life of Jacob. The author writes in verse 21, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. It's obviously a a similar picture. We have a, a father blessing his sons, except this time he's blessing his grandsons. Jacob is adopting, as it were, the the two oldest sons of of Joseph who had been born. <clears throat> In Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh are to be amongst, counted amongst his own children. But what is most significant here isn't immediately obvious unless we know the details of the story. Because what is most important here is that yet again, this is a picture of the younger son receiving the blessing. You see, when Joseph brought his sons to his father to, to be blessed, He very intentionally placed the older at his father's right hand and the younger at his father's left hand. That the greater blessing bestowed by the right hand might be given to the firstborn. But Genesis tells us that Jacob very intentionally crosses his hands. Placing the right hand on the head of the the younger. 
And in case his intention was, was confused, we, we read that Joseph actually tries to correct him and says, no, no, Father, this is the older. And Jacob says, I know. And the text actually tells us that his hands understood what he was trying to do. And his right hand rests upon the younger son's head and he gives him the primary blessing. And as he does, he worships. And again, it is an act of humble submission to God's will. You see, in that culture, the firstborn received the blessing. It was the, the cultural norm. It was the expectation. But God, again and again, generation after generation, He defied that pattern for the sake of His covenant. He defied the, the cultural expectations in order to make it clear that He was the one unfolding this plan of redemption according to His own wisdom rather than the wisdom of the world. And Jacob was acknowledging that it was this God, the God who works in mysterious ways from whom all blessings flow. It was the God who blesses the younger rather than the firstborn. This is the God whom we worship. By faith, Isaac eventually bowed to God's will. By faith, Jacob blessed, gave the first blessing to Joseph's secondborn. And by faith, we must in the same way learn to submit to God's will, even as we worship Him for who He is. You see, not only do we face difficulties in this life, we will face the, the challenge of obeying God, but we will also face the, the challenges of accepting God's will. We face those, those difficult circumstances when what we want is not what God gives. We want to be married, but He has not provided a spouse. We, we want children, but He has not given them. Or the relationships that He has given us have now been broken and, and fractured by sin, and we don't understand what He is doing some of us want to work and be productive. We want to do something useful with our hands, and yet we are unemployed or, or underemployed. Others of us have work to do, but, but we are constantly hindered by bosses and, and situations at work that, that keep us from, from doing the work that we've been given. Some of us seem to be dealing endlessly with, with sickness and injury or, or called to care for those who do so that other concerns and other desires need to be set aside. We, we all know what it is to experience God's will as something other than what we want. How often is God's will contrary to the script that we would have written? How often does His will cross our designs? And yet in all these situations, we must humbly submit to God. We must humbly submit to the one who works all things according to his wisdom rather than our own. We see it even in Jesus' own life. Remember Peter's response when Jesus first spoke of the cross. When he first told them that he was going to Jerusalem to be betrayed, to be arrested, to be condemned. 
Peter rebuked him for such talk. And Jesus in turn rebuked Peter, saying, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Jesus was ready to submit to his Father's will. And we see this on full display in the garden, the night that he is betrayed as he prays in anguish, knowing what lies before him, but nevertheless saying, Father, not my will, but your will be done. What is it that allowed these fathers to bless the younger son? What is it that that allowed Jesus to, to pray such a prayer even as he faced his own death? In just a little while, the author of Hebrews will tell us that it was for the joy set before him that he was able to endure the cross. Jesus knew his father. He knew that death could not undo his father's purpose of his good And therefore, he was able to worship even as he submitted to his Father's will in the present. Knowing that God would, in fact, keep his promise to work all things together for the good of those who love him. And so faith, faith enabled them. Faith enables us to humbly submit to God's will. Quickly, I want us to look at this fourth snapshot The fourth picture here before us, the picture taken from the life of Joseph. Look again at what we see in verse 22. We're told that by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Again, you probably remember the the story of of Joseph. It takes up a big chunk of the, the last part of the book of Genesis. Joseph was his father's favorite, and that favoritism led to enmity and led to his brothers selling him into slavery. And you remember that he ended up as a slave in Egypt. He ended up as a slave in in Potiphar's house, and he served there for, for many years. But then, as if being a slave was not bad enough, Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of sexual assault, and he was thrown into prison. And there he languished for many more years. And it wasn't until Pharaoh had a dream that only Joseph could interpret that he was finally released. But of course you know how the story goes. He wasn't just released. He was made the prime minister of Egypt. He was made second in command, second only to to Pharaoh. And it was from that position of power and and privilege that that he was reunited with his his brothers when in the the course of a severe famine they came to Egypt to buy grain. And And Joseph recognized them and eventually revealed himself to them and eventually even invited them to come and live in Egypt with them during the period of the famine. And those are the circumstances that we have to have in mind as we we hear this verse. Because at the moment that Joseph gives instructions, he is not living as a slave in Potiphar's house. He is not living as a prisoner in in Pharaoh's jail. But he is living in a position of privilege and, and power and prestige and pleasure. He has all of Egypt's goods at his disposal. And yet he still knows but this is not the land of promise. I am surrounded by goods. I am surrounded by treasures. I am surrounded by pleasures. And yet they are not my inheritance. 
My inheritance lies in the land of Canaan. I know that God will eventually work to call my family back there. And so when you go, I want you to take my bones. I want to be buried there. Because that is my true inheritance. You see, the psalmist knew that it wasn't only trials that could distance us from God. It was not only trials that could, that could cause us to drift and to, to forsake Him. It is also the treasures and the pleasures of this world, both the good and the bad. We are so weak. We can be separated from God by, by either hardship or ease, by either blessing or curse. And so the author tells us that it is not only faith that allows us to endure the hardship, but it is faith that allows us to endure the blessing as well. Joseph, surrounded by good, was not willing to claim those goods as his inheritance, but he, like we'll see about Moses in, uh, next week, he was willing to, to hold those things lightly and to set his hope on a different treasure, on the inheritance that God had promised. And in the same way, we must allow faith to, to, to sustain us, not only when it's hard, but also when it's easy. The psalmist said, may I not have poverty that I might steal and dishonor God. May I may not have riches, but I might become too at ease and forget Him. It's where we must be by faith. We can resist the, 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 the trial of hardship and we can resist the, the, the allure and temptation of, of ease. And we can continue to live as people of hope in the present. It's what God calls us to. It's what the life of faith looks like. Those who, who walk by faith, they walk in obedience even when it's hard. Those who, who walk by faith, they submit to God's will even when it is confusing. Those who walk by faith cling to the promises even when other goods abound. But what if we don't see these fruits of faith in our life? What if we struggle to obey and even disobey when God's commandments seem burdensome? What if we are, are struggling to submit to God's will when we don't understand? What if grumbling comes more naturally than worship? And what if the desire for other things far too often leads us to the right or to the left? What if our faith is weak? What if it's failing to produce fruit? But we're Americans, and so the natural answer is that we ought to just try harder to believe. But faith doesn't work that way. We can't just make ourselves believe something. But rather, faith is a response. Faith is, is a response to a faithful one. Trust is a, a response to one who is trustworthy. Faith is a response to a worthy object. And so this morning, if you find that your faith is weak, if you struggle to obey when it's hard, if you struggle to submit when it's confusing, if the desire for other things seems overwhelming, the answer is not to try harder to believe, but rather to look to the one in whom you believe. 
set your eyes upon Jesus, for He is the faithful one. He is the one who obeyed perfectly even to death. He is the one who submitted to His Father's will. He is the one who resisted Satan's temptation to have the kingdoms of the world without the cross. He is the one who walked in the footsteps of faith. And He is the one who through His faithfulness was exalted to the right hand of the Father and now sits in heaven at the right hand of the majesty on high. And because He sits there, if we set our eyes upon Him, then we too will be able to walk the path that is set before us knowing that yes, we will have to suffer with Him. But yes, we will certainly live with Him. And more than that, we will reign with Him. For He is the faithful one. And if we rest in Him, we will never be put to shame. And because such assurance is ours, because we can know that the inheritance will be ours through His resurrection from the dead, because we have such a living hope, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in Your goodness to us. And we ask now that You would open our eyes to see Jesus. That seeing Him we might believe, and believing, we might obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.